Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Westwards podcast. I'm your host, James Roy. Ordinarily, this podcast is a fortnightly production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. However, this is a feature interview I recently conducted with our special guest for the upcoming Polydactyl Kitten Club and Speakeasy, our spoken word event held in Katoomba on the first Monday of each month. Laura Greaves is a journalist, non-fiction writer, children's writer and unabashed dog lover who now resides in the Blue Mountains. She's also undertaking a PhD from the University of Newcastle. Part of this doctorate is the completion of a work of non-fiction looking at the 1842 murder of Caroline Collitz at Mount Victoria Pass, which is the road that drops down the western rim of the Blue Mountains to Hartley. This is also a story that was made somewhat famous by Henry Lawson in his poem The Ghost of the Second Bridge. I spoke with Laura at her studio in Hazelbrook in the Blue Mountains and I started out by asking her how her journey as a writer began. My journey as a writer started really as soon as I remember having thoughts and being, you know, a a conscious person. I mean, I've been scribbling stories and poems since I was probably four, five, six years old. Um, I remembered quite clearly announcing to my family that I was going to be a writer at the age of seven, I think it was. Um, And then I got a journalism cadetship straight out of high school, so I was all of 17. Do they still exist? They do, I think, yeah. They're probably very different now than what they were when I I did mine, which was in 1998 I started that. They still had journalists then, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Newspaper journalists at that, yeah. so I did that and then I was a journalist in Australia and in the UK for a number of years. Moved to Sydney in 2007 and worked for uh, various women's magazines. The last one I worked for closed down in 2009 and so I decided to go freelance then. So I was very busy freelance writing for mags, websites, papers um, all over the place for probably seven, eight years. Then I had my daughter and wrote a book. Well, I'd already written the book, but the book was published just after my daughter was born in 2014. And that really sort of was a watershed because everything that's happened since was caused <laughs> or came about because of that first, that first book. And what was that, what was that book? The first one was a romantic comedy novel called Be My Baby which had taken me 11 years to write on and off, mostly off. Um, I'm a terrible procrastinator even to this day. So I did lots of not writing in amongst short spurts of writing and really writing that book. It was quite a personal story. It was inspired by quite a personal story. And I really just wanted to write it and to prove to myself that I could finish something. So I wrote that and I just put it in a drawer, really. I didn't send it to any publishers or do anything with it for several years, probably five years. And then a good friend of mine had a romantic comedy novel published by Destiny Romance, which was the digital first imprint of Penguin. So they only did romance, they published all of them in ebooks to start with, and then some of them did go on to be published in print. So my friend had had this book published and I read it and really enjoyed it and realized that the book that was sitting in my drawer was stylistically quite similar. So completely on a whim, I pulled out the manuscript and sent it to Destiny. I didn't even read through it again. I didn't edit it. I didn't polish it in any way. I just sent it. That that either shows enormous confidence or enormous naivety, which which do you think it was? I 
think it was naivety, definitely, right. because mm. when they when the publisher of, of Destiny rang me, I thought she she said we really liked your book. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? And then I expected her to say, it needs a lot of work, you know, it needs polishing, it needs certainly it would have needed updating of the cultural references that were in it because I had sort of singers you know I had a reference to Amy Winehouse who had since died Mm -hmm. you know things like that but instead she said we love it and we want to publish it and I just even now when I remember that moment I get lost for words because it was so shocking and so incredible so they published it and then I wrote another one and they published that one and then the co-publisher of Destiny who was also one of the commissioning editors for the Michael Joseph imprint at Penguin, got in touch with me and said, look, we want to do a dog book, a non-fiction book of stories about amazing dogs, you know, a lovely, feel-good, uplifting book. She said, I don't know anything about dogs. I'm not a dog person, but I hear you are a dog person. So it's not the first time in my life my reputation as a crazy dog lady has preceded me. So she said to me, would you be interested in, in writing this book? And I said, uh, yes, most definitely. Let's do that immediately. Yeah, it's, it's funny when, they, when people contact you and say, would you be happy if we published a book that you wrote? And you think, what, what answer do you think I'm going to give you? <laughs> I know. All I've, all I've wanted to be from the age of seven is a writer. And, but this time I'll just say no. Yeah, no, I'll pass, I'll you know. Pass. Yeah. Um, and especially a book about dogs. I mean... If, you, if someone had asked me, what would be your absolute, will never happen in a million years dream job, it would be writing books about dogs. I mean, I, there is nothing better. So I wrote... Well, that's debatable. Yeah, I'll, I'll for, for me personally, okay, cool. there's nothing better. So I wrote that book that was Incredible Dog Journeys um, and it, it did really well. They really liked it. So I pitched them another one that was Dogs With Jobs. Then came The Rescuers. Then came Miracle Mutts, which is the latest one that came out in December last year. And currently I'm working on Extraordinary Old Dogs, which is about amazing seniors. Um, And that will be out December this year. And subsequently, some of the books have been published in the UK, Mexico, Russia, uh, Hungary, the Czech Republic. Anywhere with dogs. (laughs) That's right. And that's what's so great about them because dogs are universal and, and love of dogs is universal. So... I think my path to publication has been a little bit unorthodox and in some ways I feel a bit guilty about it because I never kind of had that um, experience of sending my manuscripts to, you know, countless agents and, and every publisher under the sun. In a way, I feel like I cheated a little bit, but... Yeah, you sort of... Because there's so many stories out there of people like J.K. Rowling and rejected that's know, right seven times and just persevered and and you kind of I'm, I'm kind of the same i didn't have that many knockbacks before i was i was picked up I yeah was, i was fortunate as well but yeah i understand what you're saying this kind of slight imposter syndrome about everyone else has sort of been sobbing into their rejection slips and yes i, I, I haven't got that many of them that's right and you know i'm in several uh, writers groups on Facebook and things like that and often people will post okay I've finished my manuscript and so now it's time to start querying agents and what should I do and how should I go about it and I always feel like you know ducking my head a little bit in those situations like oh, I don't know like <laughs> I didn't yeah, yeah I didn't just send it to one person and you'll get published isn't that how it works <laughs> so it, it, 
a little sidebar question. Um, what sort of dog would you be if you were a dog? Oh, that is a great question. Um, what's the laziest dog? <laughs> Do you know what? I'd probably be a greyhound because I'm a marathon runner, so I can run for kind of specific bursts of time, and then I need a lot of lying down on the couch time after uh, that. Yeah, well, greyhounds. Are, yeah, okay. No, I, I'm not a fan of the greyhound. I don't, I don't know why. Oh, I love them, but I love yeah. all dogs, so <laughs> I'm we, not one we, to judge. We've got a, a dashy, and they're pretty lazy. Yeah. Well, actually, I've got three dogs, and they're all they're all extremely lazy. So, if I had to be any dog, I'd be one of my dogs because they've got it so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd want to if you had to come back as a dog, you'd want to be selective about where and when you were a dog. Exactly. Yeah. I'd want to be a dog owned by me. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, um, so what are you working on at the moment? You're doing your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about, because it's a creative PhD. It is, yes. The PhD is in English through University of Newcastle. So instead of writing the traditional research-based thesis, I'll be writing a book, a non-fiction book, and then I'll also be doing an exegesis, which is a fancy word for a, a shorter kind of um, thesis, thesis slash reflective essay. So there is research involved in it, but it's more about my processes and, and, and reflecting on the choices that I made in, in writing the book. So the book is about a local woman, uh, a, a local mystery. It's about Caroline Collitz, who many local Blue Mountains people will know as the ghost of Victoria Pass. Mm. So, so is, that, is, that, is that the same ghost that Henry Lawson wrote about in The Ghost of the Second Bridge? Is yes, that what it is, it right, is right. yeah. And in fact, depending on, you know, what you believe, maybe he created the whole myth of the ghost. Maybe there actually isn't a ghost or wasn't a ghost until Henry Lawson created this ghost in his poem, which actually isn't even about a ghost. It's about p- being drunk enough to think you've seen a ghost. That's exactly right. That, <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's the conceit of the whole poem. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, no, um, but Caroline Collitz was a real person. Um, she was depending on which birth date you believe she was somewhere between 13 and 16 she had had an incredibly difficult and brutal upbringing at Woodford Woodford Academy in fact and was murdered um, in 1842 when she was somewhere around 15 16 the man accused of and ultimately convicted and executed for her murder was her brother-in-law. He was married to her younger sister. <laughs> younger, so right. she's 15. You shudder to think. Um, but he was also reportedly her lover. She, the, the talk was that she was living in a rather unconventional menage a trois with her sister and her sister's husband. And so much to unpack. So it's from a, from a social perspective, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. Um, and what actually drew me to her story originally was, I only moved up to the mountains in late 2017, and I've always loved a good ghost story. So somehow I came across that story fairly quickly, and I thought, oh, who was this woman? You know, everything I read about her, uh, all the media reports at the time of the murder painted her as this kind of immoral scarlet woman this loose character who was while not deserving of being murdered it wasn't a surprise to anybody that she'd been murdered um was the impression that I got from what I read given her background she was from a poor family 
Um, her parents were alcoholics. Her father either murdered her mother or her mother took her own life, depending again on what story you believe. Um, and Caroline apparently was a witness to it. So, I mean, just the trauma that this young woman had experienced, um, it shocked me and angered me, to be honest, that instead of being seen as a very resourceful, very intelligent young woman who had done what it took to keep a roof over her head, to safeguard the lives of her siblings, was seen as this, you know, harlot, I was just, it pissed me off, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever find, I mean, you, you presumably came into this with that, you know, you said you love a good ghost story, you presume, presumably came to this finding, expecting to have not a sense of fun, but a certain, certainly a sense of, you know, that, that sort of dark adventure that you find in pirate stories, oh, totally. that sort of thing. Was it, were there times when you thought, I've bitten off way too much here, this is just too much to contemplate? Yes, definitely. I mean, the horror of the real story was shocking to me. Um, I suspected there had to be more to it just from reading those newspaper reports and, and seeing the way she was described. Um, and initially, the whole reason I started looking into it was because I thought, I want to know about her life. I mean, so much is known about her death. This whole narrative has sprung up around this woman, but she's not actually in it anywhere. I mean, the actual human being is not in this story. So I thought, I'll, I'll go get a book about her. I want to know about the girl and her life and what she went through. And I was just shocked to find that there wasn't a book. And that's when I thought, oh God, I'm going to have to write the book, aren't I? You know. <laughs> so it definitely went from, oh, this is a spooky story. I love this kind of stuff to, hmm, curious, who was this person? To, I must give this woman back her voice. Mm. Um, I don't know what it says about me that I felt that I had to do that for her. Um, but yeah, it very quickly morphed from being a cool local legend into something very different. It's interesting when you think about, you know, in a hundred and what, hundred, whatever, it's 175 Almost years, 180 years, 180 yeah. 180 years. Um, sure, we, we've got a long way to go in terms of, um, in terms of due process and domestic violence, all those things. Clearly that's a, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a big thing that, to, to deal with and to, to address. Back then, it must have been a very, very different kind of. Um, I mean, the, the, you, you t you've spoken to me previously about how the the due process or the lack of it worked when they arrested people, and they were kind of like, "Oh no, I wasn't even there." Oh, okay, and just take their word for it. That's yeah, that's exactly right. I and mean, presumably the, the men had more voice than any of the women in these stories. Yeah, it was all about the men. <laughs> um, you know, like one of the things that I've uncovered, and I've yet to confirm but apparently Caroline's younger sister Maria the one who was married to the man who was accused of the murder was pregnant at the time so what happened to her I mean when her husband's executed her sister who was her provider is gone what became of her you know in all of this you can't exactly go up to Centrelink and get no that's right and her father who had abandoned the family after being acquitted of the murder of the mother so no one's around all these men are just making decisions for these young women and you know no one's looking out for them and it's just yeah it was incredibly difficult and the more that I'm learning about the times and 
the thing with Caroline is, you know, she couldn't read or write. She wasn't writing letters or keeping journals. So there is a lot about her life that I'm not going to be able to discover. So a lot of it will come down to kind of contextualizing her in those times and what life was like for women then. Um, and it does seem that it must have been incredibly difficult. But also Caroline herself, you know, I, I said before about what a resourceful young woman she was. And it seems like she had a bit of sass about her. She, she had a bit of attitude. I mean, the, one of the reports of the murder and the events that led up to it said that, uh, so she was estranged from her husband, William Collitz at the time and was back living with her sister and, and John Walsh, the man accused of the man hanged for killing her. Um, but that night, the three of them, so Caroline, John and her husband, William had met in an inn down at Uh, the foot of Mount Victoria to discuss apparently Caroline reconciling with William and William according to these articles was saying to her um, I can provide for you and you need to come back to me because I'm from a wealthy family and I've got this money and she was essentially saying I don't need your money (laughs) I can take care of myself and by all accounts she was wearing this very fancy bonnet and um, he was saying to her you know, I can buy you bonnets and I can buy you fine things. And she was like, well, I bought this bonnet, so (laughs) you can keep your bonnet money and I'll get my own bonnets. Thanks. (laughs) Quite apart from the fact that reconciling a a horrible relationship can all be hinged around whether you can buy someone a hat. (laughs) I know, but for the times and the life that she had come from, I think, he probably wasn't out of bounds in thinking that would sway her. Yeah, yeah. So, but she was, you know, she she had more um, dignity, I think, than than that. I mean, sure, she had already married him, but some part of her clearly went, no, this isn't right, and this relationship isn't good enough for me, mm. so I'm going to leave you and I'm going to try and make my way on in the world on my own which is incredible and um and presumably in that day and age a fatal error yeah yeah that's that's the lesson out of that i guess exactly that's yes that's what i'm still grappling with um i mean john walsh was convicted and executed for her murder but i i don't know he was definitely a trash human but i don't know if he did this it's just all a bit suspicious to me. The way, or the reporting of the circumstances, the way she was killed and, and what her husband did afterwards and what Walsh did afterwards, something just doesn't gel in my mind. Um, I mean, the, the, the retelling of the story is that they were walking up the pass back towards Blackheath where Caroline and Walsh were staying at Gardner's Inn and all of a sudden Walsh swung at William, Caroline's husband and Caroline held him back and said to William, run away William he's got a stone and will murder you so William did left his wife there on the dark pass in the company of a murderous man with a rock in his hand for a start Dude, like, what? (laughs) Um, But also, that story only comes from him. Mm. William is the one who said that that's how it went down. Mm. And the next morning when Caroline's body was discovered on the pass and Walsh was brought back there, he said to William, 
hang on a second, you threatened her the night before. Don't you remember? Like you, you threatened her when we were all in the pub together. And William said, oh yes, I did. Yes. And then later when it was brought up to William, hang on a second, you admitted that you had threatened Caroline earlier in the evening. William said, oh no, that's not what I meant. I, I, I must've misheard. And I, you know, it's just, and they were a very well-to-do family. They had a vested interest in, you know, protecting their name, protecting their standing in the community. I don't know. It's Almost, yeah. something stinks in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, um, how far off is this project from completion? I'm in my first year. So my, my aim is to take three years. So hopefully kind of mid 2022 is when I hope to be finished the PhD and have a finished book. Have you got a publisher yet? Um, not in, not confirmed. However, Penguin who publishes my books has already expressed interest so hopefully, mm. hopefully when they read it. Um, but that's one of the really interesting things that I'm sort of wrestling with at the moment is how to actually approach the telling of the story mm. because I, I want to do creative nonfiction. I don't want to write a sort of fictionalised version of it. I definitely want it to be nonfiction. But as I've said, there are big gaps in her life where I won't be able to say for sure exactly where she was or what she did. So there'll have to be a certain degree of creative license there. So thankfully I've got really amazing supervisors at the university who are helping me kind of whittle down my options in terms of of how I'm going to approach it. But at the moment, that's the hard part, not the, not the research or, or, or any other part of it, but just how, how do I tell this story to give Caroline back the voice I think she deserves and, and, and to tell it in the, fairest most balanced but most interesting way i can yeah from a publishing perspective you've it's a bit of a sweet spot really because in australia we love our love our non-fiction and mm. we also love our true crime so exactly exactly and, uh, as, as i've called it in other things settling the wire is might be, <laughs> might be the next big genre yeah. well that's the thing and, and also if i was just writing it you know myself for, you know for the sake of writing it I probably wouldn't feel so conflicted about the approach, but because I'm doing it for a PhD in English, I feel an extra layer of pressure to do something that just elevates it from um, standard nonfiction, I suppose. I I just want to try and do something a little bit innovative with the telling. So we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, we recently, or last weekend, we did a um, masterclass in Blacktown with with Chloe Higgins, who wrote the book The Girls Mm. about her her daughter's uh, sorry her sister's um, death in a car accident and the fractures through the family that occurred out of that yeah. but hear her talk about her approach to that story and what she thought she was thought she what she thought she was writing at the beginning and what it ended up being about is it's, it's fascinating yeah i fully expect to encounter that i think whatever i start with and however i finally decide to do it I'm sure it will morph and change and transform during the writing process. That's why it's so good having this team of <laughs> people at the university to kind of bounce ideas off and to help me kind of shape it as we go through. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. Wish you all the best with your project and can't wait to read this book. Thank you. Mm. I can't wait to figure out how I'm going to write it. <laughs> <laughs>
As I said at the top of the show, Laura Grease will be our special guest at the March edition of Hemingway's Polydactyle Kitten Club and Speakeasy, which is held at the Avalon Cocktail Bar at 18 Katoomba Street, Katoomba, at 7pm on Monday the 2nd of March. Entry to the event is $10, $5 for concession. This is a spoken word event with an open mic component, so if you have something you'd like to share, something you've written or something that you've read that you would really like to share, please bring it along and share because it's, uh, it's a friendly audience and it's a uh, wonderful atmosphere in the room. There are even lucky door prizes, so please try to make it and bring family and friends. Tell everyone. If you have any questions about Westwards or what we do, please visit our website at westwords.com.au for more information. The next episode of our regular podcast will be landing on Monday, March the 9th. Until then, stay safe and happy creating. Music